Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have two medical students here with me on their uh, last day on this rotation. Kyle, how about if you start with introductions and we'll go to David. All right, my name is Kyle Skolton. I'm a third year medical student at Rocky Vista University. And Kyle, you are day two after your second coronavirus immunization and you're feeling C plus at best, I'd say. <laughs> C plus at best. The sad thing is you're feeling C plus on the day of your evaluation. How do you think that's going to go? Hopefully not <laughs> poorly. <laughs> <laughs> that's a terrible thing to say as an attending. Uh, memo to any attendings that might be listening, don't be like me that way. You'll, you'll do fine. You had a, have had a great rotation, and it's been great having you here. David, this is uh, your capstone project, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, why don't you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about how you chose this topic? Yeah, so I'm David Jeffs. Uh, as of next week, I will be a fourth-year med student. I'm kind of excited about that. I'm interested in going into orthopedics, uh, eventually pediatric orthopedics. And this project is about sports injuries and orthopedics and the psychology, psychiatry associated with that. So Orthopedic surgery, you are now in an area that I know absolutely nothing about. I think one of the challenges with medical school is that you can only know the things you see and the field is so broad that it's very difficult to see everything, right? Mm -hmm. So um, my surgery experience was largely a lap coles and hernia repairs and GI emergency, like uh, appendectomies, right? Mm -hmm. so, so some GI stuff that came in emergently. And that's very different than the experience you had. Tell me about your experience in orthopedic surgery. Yeah, so I've been under the knife a few times myself for orthopedic surgeries as a child. Um, and then I've spent time with general surgery like yourself and neurosurgery and uh, ENT. And I've just come to be fascinated with um, the process of orthopedics and especially just my passion would be helping children that somehow lose their mobility or born with limited mobility gain the ability to walk and perform happy functioning lives. I like it. I like that a lot. I'm always amazed at how often medical students have something that was an experience they had that placed them in, in an interface with medicine as children and adolescents and how that has guided their decision making about where they want to go or what they want to do uh, in not only their career but in this podcast. So uh, I think a good example of that is recently we had a student who spoke about obstructive sleep apnea and uh, how that had affected him and um, that was his podcast and obviously it ties into where he's going into ENT in the future. So very cool, these overlaps, and, and I really like um, how you thought about this topic. Let's, um, one of the things that we try to do is have some sort of uh, pearl for shelf preparation. And as we talked about it, we talked a little bit about maybe reviewing uh, the criteria for substance use disorders like opioids. We've done that before. And so we were talking about something a little bit different this time, and I think this would be a good time to talk about adjustment disorders. Kyle, I think you have a case scenario for an adjustment disorder. Absolutely. So as far as the boards go, the biggest thing that I've seen with adjustment disorder is you have something that maybe it's stressing, but it's not terribly 
dramatic. Um, a big one of the biggest examples I see is maybe a breakup or moving to a new place. Um, those type of things. And what you see is you have these people that respond in a way that is just over the top. It's not necessarily a normal stress response. Um, one of the biggest or one of the most notable ones I've seen is a uh, guy who goes to college from a small town. He's in the big city and he just can't sleep. He doesn't want to go to class. He's failing out of school. And every night before he goes to bed, he's checking his locks and he just is so anxious about the fact that he's in a new city. Um, it was kind of interesting when I was looking at it because I thought maybe is this OCD, is this something else, but the biggest thing is there's no intrusive thoughts that you see uh, with the behavior that's been displayed. In other words, it didn't meet the criteria for OCD, mm-hmm. but it was out of uh, out uh, a stronger response than you might normally see given the circumstances. Absolutely. And I think that's the case for both depression and a couple of other situations you might come into. There would be symptoms that look like depression and are like depression, but it wouldn't necessarily meet the criteria for depression. So adjustment disorders, key aspect of this is that you have a, an identifiable change that leads to more distress than would be expected. Mm-hmm. Now in that setting, David, now headed back to you, yeah. um, sports injuries, Yes. these change people, right? Yeah. Talk a little bit about how uh, a sports injury might change an adolescent who is um, headed towards maybe uh, the hope of being an Olympic athlete Mm -hmm. or a college athlete or a professional athlete. Yeah, so these people are highly motivated uh, and they often base a lot of their personal identity on their athletic ability and performance. And so for them, a sports injury injury can be devastating. Uh, And citing an article published by the NCAA um, by Dr. Petukian, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but... We struggle with names here. We're the first to admit it. Yes. Uh, She talks about how it's normal for athletes to experience sadness, isolation, irritation, uh, sleep disturbance, disengagement, things like that. You'd that you'd kind of normally expect to see with a adverse event that significantly alters someone's life. And she talks about how this becomes a challenge when these symptoms are persistent or they begin to worsen or they start becoming uh, excessive, Uh, like excessive anger or rage, frequently crying, emotional outbursts, or substance abuse. I was impressed with uh, the article by Dr. Palish, P-A-L-I-S-C-H. This is a 2017 article. And they cited sort of the background, or they built the background for the problems associated with these injuries. So she mentioned that there's a group called the National High School Sports-Related Injury Surveillance System. I had never heard of this before. (laughs) And, of course, there are a lot of things I haven't heard about, and that's one of the great things about doing these podcasts. This uh, surveillance system... In between 1915, I'm sorry, 2015 and 2016, reported 1,393,566 injuries in high school sports. One year. Now that's not everything, because uh, and they also mentioned that there were 
million ER visits for sports-related injuries for those aged 0 to 19. I think they were referencing another paper at that point. That's a lot of injuries. 15% of those injuries in the high school sports system system are career-ending or season-ending, and that has some pretty significant implications. Can you talk about the implications of sports-ending or season-ending injuries? Yeah, and that's... um that's the type of injury that really touches on these individuals' identities, um, these athletes that place so much of themselves into their sports, but also these athletes, um, sports is a coping mechanism for them for some of their their, um, other emotional things. So with such a huge injury uh, that may change the course of their life, not only does it have this huge direct emotional consequence because of uh, lost hopes and dreams, but it also is a factor in losing your ability to exercise and kind of work through underlying uh, mental health issues that uh, now you've lost your main coping mechanism. It's interesting, I didn't realize that as I read through the papers, that was something, a nuance that I didn't pick up and makes a lot of sense. One of the other things that I think is important uh, that Dr. Palish did to set the table for this discussion, uh, she mentioned that there are 60 million kids in sports now, and I think she used the word kids, um, and that's the range, I think, 0 to 19. So we're before the NCAA stuff, right? So mm-hmm. NCAA, NCAA literature is, I think, a lot more complex than the youth and adolescent literature. There's a lot more data behind it, and yet there's still limited data for both, I think. Does yes. that sound right? Yes, absolutely. And, and one of the things that she mentioned was that there's been a change in the way sports happen. I think this has been something that's been going on for the last 20 or 30 years, maybe not the way sports happen, but that we now have a lot more single sport uh, focused children and adolescents. Those single sport focused children and adolescents are now participating in the sport year round. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's it's not seasonal anymore. You don't play baseball uh, and you're a talented pitcher and then you're the quarterback on the team, uh, the football team. Those days are mostly gone, right? Unless you're in more rural areas where, where you might be two or three sport people. Generally, you're a one sport person now in the highly competitive uh, areas. Does that sound right? Yes. Okay, so, so with these changes, there are also some changes in the type of injuries and the age of injuries that we're seeing. Does that sound right? Yes. Not necessarily changes in the injuries, but maybe the age of onset, um, the severity of those injuries. Now, you and I talked a little bit about the kinds of injuries that orthopedic surgeons would be seeing that are Mm sports-related. And I said, it looks like most of the data is about knees. And you said, I don't think so. I said, it looks like most of the data is about knees. And you said, I'm I'm, I'm not sure about that. (laughs) And then I said, I think something along the lines of, it looks like most of the literature we came across was about knees. And you said... Well, maybe, but it really depends on? On the sport you're playing. Talk to me about that. So, uh, yeah, a lot of sports you're having things like ACL injuries. Uh, that would probably happen with soccer, football, basketball. But in volleyball and softball, baseball, uh, sports like that, we're seeing a lot of uh, shoulder injuries. Uh, you might have your sits muscles, uh, rotator cuff tears. My wife, when she was, I think, 
11, started getting thoracic outlet syndrome. Hold on, you didn't marry somebody at age 11, right? No. Okay, just to, just want to clarify that. But she ended up playing softball in college, and she was one of those one-sport dedicated athletes, and as a pitcher, she had all sorts of hypertrophy of her right arm and shoulder that ended up causing thoracic outlet syndrome and numbness and all sorts of issues. Yeah, I think there's a baseball pitcher that's well known for that, right? It's sometimes named after that baseball pitcher. It wasn't yeah. Don's, it was one of the, was it Tommy John syndrome? Is that what it was? Um, that's a different injury, is but it? it is a specific to that athlete. Oh, it was Tommy John and elbow? Mm-hmm. Yeah. UCL tear. Okay. Now, uh, I did try to look at the knee article that you gave me. It looks like mm-hmm. there's a couple of different knee in, or knee surgeries that follow knee injuries. Yes. I read uh, total knee arthroplasty. Mm-hmm. What is that? So a total knee arthroplasty is, you might get me on this. I believe <laughs> it's a knee replacement. <laughs> okay, there was no intent to get you on this, just yeah. to be clear. And that's not sports related. That would be no. uh, different. And, yeah. and this came up in the context of different kinds of pain strategies that might be used for the different surgeries. So we'll come yeah, to that a little bit later. Absolutely. Uh, revision, knee arthroplasty, mm-hmm. which I think is a total knee again, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get into uh, minor arthroscopic, anterior cruciate ligament, yeah. and what other kinds of knee surgeries might you come across? So you'll get your ACL tears, your anterior cruciate. Um, you can get uh, meniscal stuff, which there's still some debate on the literature about whether a meniscus is something that's benefits from surgery, but it's commonly done anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you might have your lateral, collateral, or medial collateral ligaments, um, things like that. The career-ending surgery or the career-ending injury is ACL typically. Is that right? Or is Often that- ACL. Um, another one I've seen maybe just from personal watching sports is a full gastro uh, Achilles tendon tear. Yeah, that's, so. that's a pretty terrible one. I think that's, uh, I'm always amazed that Danny Manning came back from two of those, right? Yeah. Most most basketball players I don't think come back from those, and I think he came back from two. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that just speaks to how talented some of these athletes are, and especially him in this mm-hmm. case, right? Kobe Bryant would probably be the most notable one from the most recent era. I would say. He had one tear, is that right? One tear, yeah. I think there's some association between fluoroquinolones and those tears, is yes, that right? So definitely. Uh, you have to be careful of the antibiotics you're using on these athletes mm-hmm. as well, I believe. Um, next area of discussion, and just to make sure that we're kind of clear on this, there seems to be a dramatic difference between outcomes for people who are having concussive injuries and musculoskeletal injuries. Does that sound right? Yes. Um, although there are some articles that uh, I looked at that said that there are some similarities in the depression between uh, some of these other injuries and the depression that people experience after a concussion. I read the same, I think, articles that you shared with me, mm-hmm. and I was surprised because it looked like the musculoskeletal injuries if anything, might have more severe depressive symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. Did that surprise you? Yeah, it did. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait a minute. That doesn't seem right. I'm expecting the brain to have some sort of, you know, 
cognitive effect. It looks like mm -hmm. cognitive symptoms and depressive symptoms might be different sorts yeah. of things in those injuries. But when we're looking at the literature, it's important to know that if you're talking about at least orthopedic um, assessments, you might be aware that there's uh, a concussive injury and that might necessitate a referral somewhere else. Yeah. But individually and in itself, the injuries associated with uh, knees, joints, shoulders, and so forth, that has risks for depression that cannot be ignored. Yes, Okay. absolutely. I was surprised by that. Yeah, absolutely. And there is, um, the, I think the, the, the one additional difference where we think that uh, concussions might cause additional mental health issues in uh, the Patukian article was that it just has an indeterminate recovery, whereas most of these other injuries uh, an ACL, you're expected to be out for such and such number of months, but... Concussions were a little bit more uncertain. Yeah, and the, okay. Dr. Patukian just talked about how that can be a challenge for athletes. Um, one other quick point, and that is that boys seem to be at higher risk for injury than girls. And we're talking yes. boys and adolescents. Did you remember why? Um, I don't remember the risk of injury. I do remember the uh, rehabilitation is better in girls than it is for boys. And they pointed out that girls are more likely to rely on their social support system and talk about the emotional part of recovery than male athletes. I think there's also something about uh, boys, males, young young men, young boys, right, mm -hmm. being at higher risk because their muscles are less flexible, mm. and their skeleton is more immature. Yeah, and I didn't understand that very well. I was hoping either of you could shed some light on that. I can look that up and get back to you <laughs> on it. No, it, no. I do believe if, that menarche starts earlier in women and. And so it would make sense just from a rational standpoint that it takes longer for men to complete their full extent of growth. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I didn't, I, I wasn't aware of that. The other thing that I think we didn't mention was that because of year-round sports and single sports, we said that there are some changes in injury, maybe patterns, um, not necessarily in injury types, but the occurrence, the onset, the time, the severity, and so forth. Mm -hmm. But it looks like the athletes that are year-round single sport athletes are at higher risk for injury than their peers, which I thought was kind of interesting too. I, I would have thought maybe uh, exposure to different uh, sports where you're maybe not staying up to date on that sport and you know, working with a, maybe a continuous coach might you know, place you at higher risk, but apparently not. Single sport and uh, year-round is where the risks seem to come in. Yeah, I and I... I just grew up in the era where cross-training was important in athletics. I had multiple coaches talk about the importance of cross-training. And so it makes sense to me that, that uh, these single-sport athletes are getting additional injuries, but it's unfortunate that we're kind of losing the importance of cross-training in athletics. I wish I knew. It makes sense to me, but then again, 
I, the data is hard for me to sort through because of my relative uh, lack of understanding of this data. And, and just as a side note, these podcasts, um, I usually try to spend somewhere between four and eight hours per podcast on reading the literature, being able to understand what I'm reading, have some ability to have uh, an ability to respond back to the literature. Even with the time I spent on this one, which was a little bit less than I like to, I, I still felt totally lost. So um, one of the things we encourage is that if anybody finds errors in the podcast to let us know so that we can put that in the description of the podcast, yeah. right? And uh, again, this is information that we found. It doesn't mean we found everything, right? It's what yeah. we, the best that we know at the moment based on our literature search. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to realize that there are definitely areas of un, um, where we still don't understand everything, but I think there some directions as far as awareness with the mental health challenges associated with injury and surgery that we certainly can uh, stress and um, be confident that it's important to uh, be aware of those things. I think there's also enough in the literature now that it gives us some directionality on what we want to look at further. Right? Yeah, absolutely. One of, the, one of the things that I thought was interesting was uh, over and over, we saw comments about how team sports had better recoveries than non-team sports. And I assume that's for the same type of injury. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so one of the largest factors in injury recovery um, happens and to be adherence to um, the rehab plan and the other is the social support system that an athlete may have. And so when an athlete has a team to be there to support them and encourage their recovery, it's uh, a lot more beneficial just from the data for their rehabilitation. That I don't think they spent much time as far as why that is. I assume there's um, more negative self-talk that isn't able to be broken up when you're on your own in a injury recovery, but I think the data is still out on that one. It's interesting that you said more negative self-talk. So one of the articles that you gave me was the Forrest Dyke article. This was uh, Psychosocial Factors and Outcomes from 2016. Mm -hmm. And this is, a, this is a challenging article. They, they tried to take both quantitative and qualitative data and make sense of all of the qualitative and quantitative data out there to, um, I think, give us a snapshot of what's happening and where, where we might go next. The key findings, and, and by the way, this is challenging because this is merging team and individual data type of in, uh, injury data, competitive level, and I think they also made a comment about uh, the number of countries that are involved in this. So uh, I think most of the sports injury uh, articles that are being written in terms of psychosocial rehab uh, and the um, emotional aspect of that or the psychological aspect of that is coming out of Australia followed by, I think, England, and then the United States, and maybe Canada, right? So there's this, there's a global interest in this, but it's coming from a lot of different places. So the data is worldwide. It's a lot of different kinds of sports. It's difficult data to try and summarize and make a picture out of, mm -hmm. and yet they did, right? Yeah. And they found a couple of things based on what I understood. First is that there are three core themes that show up in the meta in all of the data that's been published. And it it seems like it follows a CBT sort of outline, right? And uh, 
you guys have been in some of the CBT groups, right? What do you guys understand of CBT at this point? There's a lot of instructing awareness of whatever um, challenge you're facing, and then talking about uh, how you approach that, um, the stressor in your life, discussing that and maybe combating any negative beliefs about the event. So uh, the relationship between cognitions, beliefs, and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, right? And how we act on those and how we check the facts on those, right? So, yeah. so I saw uh, injury-related emotions and the emotions associated with the potential outcome. Injury-related cognitions, what you believe about the injury might have a significant effect on what the outcome is. And injury-related behaviors. Now, I'm not sure I tracked all of those very well, but it seems like those kind of are rolled into something called uh, return to self. Did you read about return to self, David, or was that something that registered with you the same way it did with me? Um, I read about it a little bit. I'm more familiar with the model that Podlog uh, proposes in the article uh, that's psychosocial factors. Why don't you go ahead and talk about that then? Okay, so she talks about how there's three components of this triangle that need to be addressed, and there's the distress that individuals have, whether it be injury or um, any other impact on athletic performance, and then uh, determined coping skills is the other one of the branches of that, and then denial is the other, which I thought was an interesting factor to have of your big three things to look at. But she talks about how denial can be helpful in maintaining focus and just realizing that you can deny where you're at in the belief that, oh, you'll be fine later. But it can also have issues when it comes to compliance where, oh, I'm not that injured. I'm going to go run drills with the rest of the team when my ACL tear is still, you know, high risk, high risk. Yeah. I was intrigued by how the data is very mixed on some of those kinds of things. Yeah. Now, I think the, the article that you're referencing had a comprehensive rehab plan that included mm -hmm. not just the physical rehab, but the emotional rehab as well. Do you want to just go through the highlights of that? Yeah, so it talks about um, educating individuals about their injury. Um, and then when someone gets injured, setting goals and rehab or goals about their rehabilitation and return to sport um, checkpoints. And then Building the rehabilitation team is probably the most important um, because, again, we talk about the social aspect of injury recovery. These athletes can become very depressed and might end up having drug abuse problems if we're not careful. And the team and the coaches can have a huge impact on how these uh, people approach their rehabilitation. Um, talks about managing emotions and visualizing stages of recovery. 
talking about focus and distraction control. And then another one is working through pain and building confidence in return to play. Um, so I think one thing that uniquely interested me was the strong recommendation to set alternative exercise plans for these athletes. Uh, again, they're highly motivated people who suddenly have, are supposed to do nothing sometimes in their minds uh, while the team continues to work together and get better. Uh, and the recommendation was as physicians or healthcare providers, we can provide uh, recommendations for alternative exercises that these athletes can do to still feel part of the team and realize that they're still increasing their skills despite not being able to do what they were doing before the injury. I think this, this speaks to a couple of things that we've touched on before. One of them is that the difference between team sports and individual sports mm -hmm. seems to be a major factor in the, the emotional outcomes that the athletes have. Mm -hmm. uh, people that are in sports that are uh, one people kind of sports mm -hmm. uh, don't seem to have the same kind of team support. Having that, just the, just the group of team members, teammates, seems to make a difference, right? So mm -hmm. volleyball has teams, basketball has teams, football has teams. Those are sports that seem to have somewhat better recoveries and less emotional challenges than uh, gymnastics, I think, was the example that was pointed out. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think is pretty important that you're speaking to uh, in, in what uh, Forsdyke talked about as being the return to self, that loss of self-confidence that comes with the injury, right? Can I play at this level of again? Can I do it again? I, athletes who let that doubt linger seem to have a more difficult recovery, mm -hmm. right? Then self-esteem, if you are your sport, and you lose self-esteem, that's very challenging, and that mm -hmm. seems to affect the recovery. So helping uh, or working with student athletes and athletes that are not students to have an identity that's outside of the sport, I think, sounds pretty helpful. Right? Yeah. And then uh, uh, the other thing that I thought was fascinating was one of the, it, it was like this little line that athletes who saw the injury as an opportunity for growth yeah. had better outcomes than those that didn't, right? Yeah. I think that's probably true everywhere. You know, whatever setback you have, if you can look at that as an opportunity for growth, right? I think they call that the growth mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what have we not talked about with regards to uh, mental health and orthopedic, that those orthopedic sports injuries that overlap? Uh, what, what have we not addressed other than opioids at the moment? <laughs> other than opioids. Um, I think that uh, it's important to realize that according to many of these articles, the it, even if uh, you don't understand much about the mental health of your athletes, uh, addressing mental health may be involving some sort of uh, sports psychologist or uh, a practitioner that does understand actually improves the quality and speed of rehabilitation for injury in these athletes. I find that just absolutely fascinating because I, I'm not sure that's how it's always been. Uh, Kyle, you were, you were telling us a story earlier. I don't know if you feel comfortable sharing that again on mic. Oh, just uh, about one of my fellow teammates? Yeah. Yeah, I think 
Me, personally, anytime I saw somebody get injured, I had a the most notable experience was a guy who started on our basketball team, and he was guaranteed his spot once he recovered fully, and he never even got on the court ever again. So I never felt comfortable telling my coach anything about an injury or if I had a tweak or anything because I did not want to lose my spot. And you played basketball in high school, and then you played for a year in college. Is that right? Yeah, it was – don't even think I made it to a year. <laughs> <laughs> and you were a center at 6'2", is that right? Yeah, it's, I was more of a point guard, I'd say. But David might have, David might have been my center. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, very, very, very interesting, right? So, so that issue of injury and what it means, right, and recovery from injury, pretty complicated, and, and team dynamics come into play, coach dynamics come into play. Mm -hmm. uh, very fascinating, though, that having somebody involved that can talk about some of these issues that we brought up, and and I think, and I think there some of them are pretty obvious, right? Like, what if I can't come back from this injury, which is possible. A fair number of people who have injuries really don't ever compete again at the same level, or they lose their ability to compete in that sport permanently, right? Yeah. So, so it's a very legitimate concern. One of the challenges I saw in the literature was it was hard to sort out the difference between um, does a depression prolong the recovery or is a prolonged recovery simply depressogenic, right? Is it Because it looks like the closer... Uh, that the athletes came to their ability to return to play, the more their mood improved, right? So there's, there's a relationship between, okay, I can see the end of this and I feel better now. Even though it seems like there's also a lot of data to suggest that just the injury itself causes at least uh, normally some sort of uh, emotional change and perhaps an adjustment disorder in some cases and perhaps even depression where all of the criteria are met in other cases. They note a lot of anxiety in the return, right? Can mm -hmm. I perform at the same level that I did before? And that's uh, something that gets in the way of people returning to the court a lot of times, which makes me think about the way you return athletes from an injury back to the back to the court, right? Do you let them have their spot back immediately, like Kyle's talking about, or do you say, okay, uh, so that you know you can get your legs back under you, we're going to play you uh, in the second and fourth quarters at the very beginning for the first four minutes of each of those quarters, or at the end of the first and the end of the third, right? You know, wherever that fits in so that you can kind of get some experience and have uh, measured success in those areas before you move forward. I don't know the answer to those things, right? But they, they clearly play a role. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that um, I think is worth noting is opioids. Yes. So there's an opioid epidemic mm -hmm. and um, surgeons across the board post-surgically have given uh, high numbers of opioids for the pain of surgery, right? Mm -hmm. That started to change, and you found a prospective article on what one uh, hospital, HSS in New York, New mm -hmm. York, is doing. What is was that? Uh, hospital Specialty Surgery? Hospital Special Surgery, of Special Surgery in New yeah. York, New York. This is the Soften article, an evidence-based approach to opioid epidemic in orthopedic surgery, right? Yes. And they noted that orthopedic surgeons were a, or orthopedic surgeries, and I'm not sure I remember the exact language, were a key driver of opioid overprescribing and that uh, orthopedic surgeons were responsible for almost 8% of all scripts, which was number three on the list, right? Yeah. So number three highest prescribers of opioids. 
they they build a strategy for trying to change this. Now, one of the there there are a lot of issues with opioid uh, the opioid epidemic. One of those is that overprescribing of opioids without uh, patient understanding or education led to bottles being left in in the house, right? Mm-hmm. And then kids would find these adolescents in many cases, and eventually there would be a transition from. Um, from finding that bottle to heroin use over time, right? And then in addition to that, there's some concerns about the sports injuries introducing people to opioids. Yeah. And so we, you found an article that looked at the, uh, another article that looked, which is the NUPO, right? Non-medical use of prescription opioids. This is the Vela's article in 2016, which uh, took data from the Monitoring for the Future study. Um, and we'll talk about both of these two. So I want you to tell me what you saw as the highlights from this prospective HSS study, what what direction they wanted to go and why. Yeah, so they gave some pretty detailed criteria on multiple levels on how they want to address the opioid crisis. One is um, identifying people who um, might overuse, might abuse opioids, and also identifying people that already have an opioid tolerance, uh, things like that. They talk about uh, using the prescription drug monitoring program to make sure you know how many uh, opioids your patient has used in the past. So I'm going to back up just a little bit. So they they said that the strategy had three prongs to it, and I think you're speaking about some of these prongs, but I want to try and focus those down maybe uh, more directly. The first one was they need to change prescribing habits of the physicians, Mm -hmm. right? How did they go about doing that? Um, They had training programs for the physicians. They mentioned that only five states right now uh, require that physicians get continuing education about opioid prescription and that there's very little education in the first two years about med school or in med school about using opioids and how to prescribe. Right, so so education was one of the pillars, right? They, mm-hmm. they talked about that. Now I went and looked at the article that they referenced with only five states having uh, continuous opioid, uh, continuing medication, uh, continuing medical education. Yes. Now Utah does have that, but they were not listed in 2016 and I think it might be because it came along about the time that state published. I think that number is now much higher than it was before, Um, but clearly there was a lot of problems in education about opioid prescribing, and this article was pointing that out very accurately. Um, In fact, I think uh, we talked about how there was this um, perfect storm, so to speak, in developing the opioid crisis, and one of those was that physicians were taught that you can't get addicted to opioids in surgery, right? Did either of you guys look at that article? Yeah, the short little paragraph from 1980. Yeah, so the, 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 I think it was, was it the New England Journal that yeah. published this as an editorial, and somebody mentioned in a small case series that uh, patients that were given opioids for pain control didn't develop addiction, right? So this wasn't a long-term study. It didn't look at all sorts of surgeries, but this article ended up getting uh, cited uh, at least a thousand times, according to Google Scholar, and then it became kind of truth, right? Because we, we don't have a lot of data that, that really tells us that there's no risk to prescribing opioids, right? Yeah. So So this was one of the factors, and I remember being told in medical school, you don't 
create addiction to opioids by treating pain. But I'm not entirely sure that's true, right? There's a lot of caveats to that that are well beyond the, the scope of this conversation. So those changes have been very important, right? My, my last year's CME, I spent almost 30 hours on the NIH website looking at um, CME that had been tailored for physicians to address pain management. And it's very different now than it was when I was a resident and I was on, or a medical student and I was asked to write the script for uh, a patient who had just had a surgery. And I said, well, how many pain pills do you write? And they said, uh, probably uh, 90 with a couple of refills. <laughs> and I was like, uh, what? I, of course, that's my recollection. I'm sure it wasn't quite that bad. Uh, but now it's very different. And I think uh, they have... Uh, HSS went through a lot of data to try and find best practices or best data, and if not best data based on uh, trials, best data based on opinions for how many opioids and what type of opioid for each surgery. Does that sound right as well? So they actually had templated pain treatment uh, management. Now the problem with that is that there are patients who have tolerance differences, right? So tolerate, their tolerability is... um, uh, like they would need a lot more opioid to get the same pain relief, right? Yeah. And that breaks down the process, right? You can't have a templated approach when it doesn't work for everybody. So what they did was a, a step two, which was a carve out for people that were highly tolerant or had a substance use disorder in place already. Mm-hmm. I was very fascinated by that process. What, did you re- what do you recall of that process? So the, they first need to identify these patients that have either tolerance from be it chronic pain treatment or addiction or, or what have you. And or just the genetics, right? Yeah, genetics. Um, and so they recommended having a pain management appointment prior to surgery at least two weeks prior where you get a urine screening and then you talk about these things and uh, by identifying them early you can uh, develop a plan with your patient about how to manage pain and minimize possibility of addiction or uh, further negative consequences that come when you have such high levels of opioids. So they they um, mentioned that one of the few drawbacks that they saw of this approach that they were putting into place was the cost. Yes. Right. So this does does add to the cost uh, for the individual patients. Um, but I, I guess you're weighing that against the cost of becoming opioid dependent and mm-hmm. eventually moving to things like heroin, right? Yeah. And um, go ahead. Yeah, and I remember they addressed the issue of cost by comparing it to uh, how we now manage diabetes. Uh, the initial cost for all of these pre-diabetic screenings and the, the uh, monofilament test and stuff, it's pretty high. But compared to the cost of managing late-stage diabetes, it's much less. And they, uh, they talk about the cost of treating someone who is opioid-dependent is greatly increases their number of days in the hospital and the cost of their care. They had a couple of tools that surprised me. They had not just the uh, Ask Every Patient tool, right, mm-hmm. which was a, a fairly thorough screening for opioid and pain medication misuse, but they also had a tool that I think was developed by, I want to say the CDC? No, no, not the CDC, uh, NIH, to identify people that have high tolerance thresholds. Mm -hmm. And so they would screen with both of those. If somebody came up positive for a substance use disorder, 
they would then taper the patients or the plan is to taper those patients completely down or off of opioids to the point that when they reintroduce the opioids that they would be helpful for the post-surgical experience, right? Yeah. I was, I was intrigued by that. And then it looked like what they did is refer to everybody that screened for risk of substance use disorder for follow-up for treatment. Yes. I, I was impressed by that as well. Yeah, they recommended even having a, a pain management uh, specialist on, in your clinic or the hospital to be almost a liaison between uh, the hospital and the surgical staff and either patients' primary cares or their pain management clinics to make sure everyone's on the same page and getting these people appropriate treatment. Now, they also talked, to, you mentioned something before that was part of this uh, identification of substance use disorder, and that is the use of what are called PDMPs, or patient mm -hmm. drug monitoring programs, right? Yeah. So anybody that's prescribing opioids in the state of Utah has access to a PDMP program where we are supposed to look and, and uh, see what kind of um, medication fills a patient has had before we're prescribing controlled substances, right? So this yeah. was required in the documentation in New York State, I believe. Yeah. Uh, now the third step to this, so we've talked about changing the habits of physicians, and part of that was done through, um, through having that templated sheet, right, and mm -hmm. the CME. But then uh, the second step was identifying patients who wouldn't be able to use the template and that you had to make adjustments for. Third step was education, so telling patients and providers what? What did you teach them? Taught them about the risks of opioid addiction and that some pain is tolerable, basically. Uh, and they go on to report that, I think it was less than 20% of patients who received opioid prescriptions were educated at all about the use of their op opioids. And safe uh, disposal. disposal, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's fascinating to me that, you know, I, I think there's an assumption that, oh, well, opioids are so common that everybody knows about them, yeah. but I don't know that that's true, right? Yeah. Um, the, the NUPO study, non-medical use of prescription opioids, I was fascinated by a couple of things in this. The first is that uh, University of Michigan has had a contract since 1975 to collect data and try and uh, monitor trends for youth in terms of substance misuse since since then, right? So mm -hmm. they've had this contract yearly onward from 75. So we now have, uh, what, 45, almost 50 years of data on substance misuse consecutively. If you go online, you can find Nora Volkow, Dr. Volkow, who is in charge of National Institute of Mental Health. She's phenomenal, by the way. You can hear her talk about uh, trends in, in uh, exactly this in her uh, video blog that she does. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a study pulling a subsection out of this, right, or trying to pull some data out to, to publish a paper. And they talked about the risk of adolescents developing substance use disorders based on their sport. What did it say? What did it conclude? Do you remember? Or did I find this uh, study without you? I don't remember that specific aspect of the study. But I focused on others a little more, if I'm being fully honest. <laughs> Tell me what you found out about uh, the risk of having a sports injury and developing a, an opioid dependence uh, problem. 
I know it increases the risk. Yeah, did you, did you find any data that was really specific? I know that when I was working in, uh, in oh, a private practice setting, my experience, and again, this isn't the data, my experience was that uh, young men and women who are riding skateboards seem to show up predominantly in my office with opioid dependence. Mm -hmm. And when we started talking about this topic, I think we talked about the risk of sports injuries leading to that. This article kind of made the case that, no, not, not so much. The risk is pretty much across the board the same for developing an opioid uh, uh, misuse or opioid use disorder, whether you play sports or not, with two exceptions. Mm -hmm. One is ice hockey and the other is weightlifting. Now, ice hockey makes sense. I was uh, speaking with a Canadian who played ice hockey and how many times he was in the uh, emergency room yeah. not long ago, right? How many injuries he had sustained playing ice hockey. That one makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, even with all of the protective gear, there are still a lot of injuries in ice hockey. Do you play ice hockey in the Dakotas? Uh, North Dakota is the big one. South Dakota, we're, we're not invited to the to the crew, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but weightlifting, I didn't understand. I'm not sure I understand the risk for injuries um, no. that might be associated with weightlifting, but I did wonder if the idea of taking performance-enhancing drugs, PEDs, might increase the possibility of, of getting into opioids. Any, did either of you see anything that talked about how weightlifting might have led to increased uh, substance use disorders? I am looking at that right now. And let's see. Sounds like the simple answer is no. No. <laughs> <laughs> if we come up with it, we'll we'll have that in a different uh, podcast. Yeah. All right. So that's I think kind of the span of the things that we had hoped to tackle with the podcast. What have we not talked about that we should have talked about, David? I think uh, it should be mentioned that. Um, a developing field, at least in orthopedics and in other surgery specialties, is the multimodal approach to pain management. So that's uh, often getting people on uh, non-opioid pain medications day before surgery, and then uh, there's different techniques to manage pain during and after. Uh, one common thing that's developing in orthopedics is nerve blocks, uh, and then sometimes I even seen uh, clinics where a patient will come back in after a few days or a week to have their nerve re-injected with something if they're still in lots of pain rather than going to the opiate to manage that pain. So I think you uh, gave me an article that describes some of the differences differences between adductor, mm -hmm. um, adductor canal, canal A, C, what was the name of the process? ADD. Adductor canal nerve block or something. Yeah, and that it was compared or contrasted to a different ephemeral nerve yeah. block. Is that right? And there's thought that maybe this uh, this nerve block gives you yeah. reasonable pain management without some of the risks of falls. You still have some of those risks. And yeah. I, I think even uh, though they were pointing out the risk of falls, the risk of falls with opioids might be understated in that comparison yeah. too. So we still need to consider that opioids cause problems as well. Yeah, I've also, uh, I just thought it was unique that the, the last uh, surgeon I worked with, uh, one of her uh, aspects of her multi multimodal pain management was actually uh, gabapentin mm -hmm. before and after surgery. And that's, that's something I've never heard of. 
I would love to look more into the literature about that. I think there's a lot of developing literature looking at things like uh, duloxetine, mm -hmm. uh, which is an antidepressant originally that has both serotonergic and noradrenergic reuptake inhibition as being a medication used in, in a number of different pain questions that you might see on the shelf exams. Um, the issue of pain is becoming important enough that I think uh, people that are thinking thoughtfully or, or are working thoughtfully to try and reduce that risk for their patients are probably in the right space. Highlights. Uh, let's see, Kyle, what was uh, the takeaway for you from this uh, presentation that you thought might be worth repeating at this point? The biggest takeaway I took from it was just the support that it seems like is needed for a lot of these mm -hmm. athletes, especially maybe even the younger ones, on coming together and supporting them through the injury and really educating the coaches on that this isn't the kid's fault that he's injured and a punitive, non in involving strategy might not necessarily be the best for the kid and his recovery. I, I think that's one of the things that impressed me as well is that there's not only a lot of literature about this but some directionality on how to be a better coach that has a better possibility of recovery of their their uh, player, right? Uh, David, what about you? What was the takeaway you had from this? I think Kyle hit it on the head for one of my big points but also it might be useful as a practitioner to have in your back pocket uh, sets of exercises that patients who are injured can do to stay involved. Um, so if somebody's got knee injury, have like upper body coordination exercises that you could recommend to the coaches and support staff. And also just being aware that uh, the your patients that have sports injuries or surgeries have psychiatric needs and uh, it wouldn't hurt to assess them for that. Yeah, I think that was probably some of my takeaway as well. I, th I think one of my takeaways was that there can be a more comprehensive way of going about this. I don't necessarily think of sports psychology as something that I have any inkling about and yet um, at this point I'm looking at this thinking, wow, this is a fairly complicated issue mm -hmm. when you're thinking about a whole person who is an, an athlete uh, a student um, and a child of two parents, a mm -hmm. brother, a sibling, right? All of these things, all of these roles, um, they're interrelated. You, you can't really just say, well, you know, you lost your athletic ability. Sorry, good luck with your rest <laughs> of life, right? Um, but I was also impressed by the way you talked about the multidisciplinary team as that's coming mm -hmm. together. It, it seems that uh, sports medicine is becoming more sophisticated than uh, far more sophisticated than what I understood. Of course, I think I mentioned in the middle of the podcast that I simply don't have the experience and the exposure to this that would give me any clue about the things you're talking about. So I, I think, uh, generally speaking, multidisciplinary teams like what we see here at the State Hospital and other places really bring a lot of expertise to an issue. And I think they push each other to be better at what they're doing uh, as team members. So I, I'm impressed by that. Uh, very, very fascinating topic. I'm very glad you picked this and guys, uh, thank you so much for the rotation. Yeah. You guys will have your evaluations next. Don't be afraid of that, right? They're, they should be enjoyable. And uh, thanks for a great rotation. I really appreciate what yeah. the two of you did. On that note, guys, team out. Team out. Team out.